0: Good morning. I grew up in a really loving... I was very privileged, actually. I grew up in a very loving um, family, my mum and dad. Um, They're not Christians. They're still not Christians yet. Uh, But I continue to pray fervently for them. But my mum sent us to Sunday school... And I can still remember um, three little girls because most of you know I'm a triplet. And uh, all I can remember about Sunday school was pink hand-knitted fluffy jumpers and little beautiful little um, ballerina sort of full skirt and black patent shoes. Remember black patent shoes? Just gorgeous. So I'm afraid that's all I remember of Sunday school. Um, And then as a teenager... I went on this journey of finding out, who am I? I wanted to know. And I remember very distinctively having fears about what was going to happen to me when I died. I had no idea. And so I constructed my own idea of life after death. Um, Basically, I came up with the idea that there was nothing. And so that would be okay because if I died... Um, I wouldn't feel anything and um, I just would cease to exist. But, you know, that didn't really um, answer the, you know, the yearning in my heart. So I embarked upon um, a tumultuous journey of trying to find out who I am and what, what, what was the meaning of life. <laughs> if anyone has embarked on a journey like that, what is the meaning of life? And what happens when you die? And so, ultimately, this journey led me to a couple of really dodgy experiences. And one of them was meeting up with the young woman who was looking back now very much into the occult, which I didn't realise at the time. I was very naive. And um, she, went, she led me to um, a healing um, experience And so I naively went along and um, these people prayed for me. And actually, they laid hands on me and they prayed in the name of Jesus. This is a true story. And I can remember feeling like burning fire almost going through my body. It was that powerful. But I actually came to realise that they didn't know Jesus. They were charlatans. Um, And much of my journey was a journey of experiencing counterfeit until I experienced the truth in Jesus Christ. I wonder if any of you have ever experienced a similar journey until you came upon the living truth in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at, this is a new, they gave me, A new one. (laughs) They gave it to me. (sighs) And they said, just put it up, Gail, and it'll flash. So I'll try down. There you go. So today we're looking at the scripture from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And it's a very scary scripture. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I read this and it was pretty scary to read this. A challenge for all the experiences I've had and some of the things I've heard about that in the name of Jesus people do, but a challenge personally for me as well. You know, in the ancient world, miracles were common events. The frequency of miracles came from the ancient idea of illness. Basically, illness was thought to be a psychosomatic situation, that demons could come and possess you and if you went around and called out upon the name of the prevailing miracle worker of that time, you could earn your money by expelling demons from people who had a psychosomatic illness. So Jesus, in this context was performing incredible miracles, true miracles and there were many, the scriptures say many, many charlatans, many false prophets, many false teachers who saw this happening and so to earn a living went around onto the unexpecting and unsuspecting and in Jesus' name called upon the demons to be expelled from the sick person. And often because it was psychosomatic, people became well. So this was the context that Jesus speaks to these people and the leaders of the church in in Jesus' time. They didn't deny that pagan miracles could occur. Origen was an ancient theologian and he said this, such curative power is of itself, neither good nor bad but within the reach of the godless as well as of the honest and even in the new testament in acts 19 we see some jewish exorcists who didn't know jesus cure people it says in acts 19:13 some jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. In Jesus' time, to earn a living, there were many imposters who gave lip service to Jesus Christ and used his name to produce sometimes spectacular, sometimes amazing miracles. So into this context comes Jesus' teaching this morning On obedience of the heart first towards Him, which is the true measure of knowing Him and being empowered by His Spirit. So today we're actually going to look at two claims that are made. Two claims by two very different sets of people. And then we're going to look at two very different outcomes from this passage. The first claim are by those who say that they know Christ and do things in his name but are evildoers, the word says. In the new living it says, but their works were unauthorised. That's the first claim by the first group. The second group are those who know Christ and do his will. And they're the ones that I've entitled this sermon, I will, Lord, with all my heart. That's the second group. We're also going to look at two outcomes today. Those who say... Sorry, I'll go back one. Those who are evildoers and those who don't love him with all their heart and don't obey with all their heart. The outcome is they're banished from the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty scary. And the second outcome are those that say, I will, Lord, with all my heart. And their outcomes are seen in a number of ways, in many ways, but I've just chosen three. They'll show that they have a deep love for Christ and others. They'll show, as we heard from Jonathan last week, they'll develop fruit in their lives. This is all part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the last is that they'll have a deep love for the church. There are two great permanent truths within this passage and there is only one way in which people's love for Jesus can be proved and that is by their practice. Words or even verbal profession of knowledge of him is never, ever enough. There is only one proof of love and that is proof of obedience to him. And there is no point in saying that we love a person and then doing things that break their heart. So often we confess God with our lips and yet we deny Him with our lives. And it's not difficult to recite a creed, but it is difficult to live the Christian life as Jesus calls us. Faith without practice is a contradiction in terms, and love without obedience is an impossibility. At the back of this passage is the idea of judgment. No one can ultimately deceive the God who sees the heart. You know, the Bible says that out of the wellspring of our heart brings forth life. So if we've given our heart to Jesus, we've given our life and everything in it, So as we proceed through this really important passage, we're going to hold before us the concept of obedience, the abandonment to Christ with our whole heart. So what is obedience? Well, disobedience, first, is a disconnection from our dependency on God. And that's always our primary disobedience. How disconnected have we become from God? Obedience is the full submission of our values, our emotions, our hearts to Christ. So as we proceed, I want you to hold that concept of obedience before you, before you the abandonment to Christ with our whole heart, the I will, Lord, with my whole heart. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you and we, we want to not hear from me, we want to hear from you. We really want to, Lord Jesus, just be changed and transformed by the very real truth of this scripture, by the impact of the significance The eternal destiny of this scripture, the outcome of whether we're surrendered completely and wholly and fully obediently to you, or whether we just give you lip service, will be the outcome of our eternity. Lord, this is a very important scripture that you've given us here today. Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, two claims. Who are they and what do their attitudes and actions look like? Well, we've talked briefly about lip service, but in Romans 10, 8 to 9, Paul says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, but believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You know, in ancient times, people were addressed as Lord as we address people with Sir these days. But we get from this scripture that these charlatans and false prophets seem to acknowledge Jesus for who he really was the Lord of the deity. Their address to Jesus is not a cold or formal Lord. It's enthusiastic, Lord, Lord, as if the speakers want Jesus to know their zeal and their um, outcomes that they've done for him in his name. And they seem to be getting immediate and spectacular results and their successes are numerous. They're many, the scriptures say. God must be blessing them. Surely God will understand and sympathise if there's not always enough time for prayer or self-examination or conscious repentance. The results are the important thing. If the essential truth of the gospel becomes secondary to the results, well, it's only because the supporters and the people that they're doing these miracles for, well, they need to see the miracles. They need to see the outcomes, these religious extroverts convince themselves that their success oriented spectacular victories are more important than the nitty gritty of consistent discipleship. They go on to speak of things done in the name of Jesus that they regard as significant. The questions are didn't we prophesy? The word signifies speaking. In the name of God, things that are hidden that need to be revealed or things foretold in the future. And then they said that they cast out demons. In the secular Greek world, the word for demon could actually mean a deity, a god, or it might refer to an aspect of of human personality that someone, for example, you might say someone's drivenness, in their personalities, a result of demonic activity. In the New Testament, demons were beings who occupied a position somewhere between people and God, and they were were always attributed to Satan. In the Gospels, demons' deeds are evil, and they sometimes bring about physical limitations to people that they inhabit. Jesus expelled demons from sufferers on a number of occasions and exorcisms were regarded as works done in the name and the spirit of Jesus. And miracles, miracles were mighty works done um, that were done in Jesus' name and these charlatans would have come before Jesus on judgment day and pleaded and said, but we perform miracles, Jesus. People were healed. We cast out demons. Surely that gives us a right to enter into heaven. And yet Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. In 2 Thessalonians 9, 2, sorry, 9 to 10, We're told that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. That could have been me. They perish because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Who is the truth? I found the truth. I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful to Jesus that I found the truth. But you know it's no different today. In Christianity Today, a magazine that's um, printed every month, the July edition Was very telling for me. It was I photocopied it. It was called Africa's Gospel, Gospel Riches, and it says Africa's rapid embrace of prosperity, Pentecostalism provokes concern and hope. I just want to read you a couple of paragraphs from the beginning. Pastor Michael Okonwo rises from his gold-coated throne before 4,000 onlookers in Lagos, Nigeria. Hallelujah, bellows the self-proclaimed father of the fathers, pastor of the pastors, wearing a glittery green gown. The crowd stands and roars. A 62-year-old former banker and graduate of the Morris Cirillo School of Ministry in San Diego, California, Okonkwo touts a seminar called Financial Intelligence. If you've missed it, he encourages you to buy the tapes. Okonkwo touts a seminar... Sorry, I've said that. Okonkwo describes the intelligence he preaches in his book Controlling Wealth God's Way. Many are ignorant of the fact that God has already made provision for his children to be wealthy here on earth. When I say wealthy... I mean very, very rich. Break loose. It is not a sin to desire to be wealthy. Bishop of the Redeemed Evangelical Mission since 1988, Okonkwo presides over the annual Kingdom Life World Conference of 150 prosperity oriented churches. But tonight he yields the podium to the Reverend Felix Omombudu, who urges the crowd to dream big There are so many dream killers around, he says. Don't let them kill your dream. I agree with that one. Omombudo prophesies, your tomorrow will be better than today. In 2007, you will take your place. The crowd is thrilled. Omombudo promises that women will find husbands, audience members will buy new cars, and the baron will birth twins. To open themselves to this blessing, Omambudu encourages the crowd to give Nigerian $25,000, about $200. Local school teachers earn only $150 per month, so the amount is significant. Yet more than 300 people swarm Ombudu, who rubs oil from a bowl on their palms. Within minutes, the church nets a tax-free, $60,000. Well, you can make up your own mind about that. But in a country where there's extreme poverty, the article goes on to say how many have been reduced to destitution and, and desolation as a result of this false teaching. So it's alive today, rock stars who profess to know Jesus and then we see by their behaviour we get this dissidence, this discord that publicly they've made this stand when they've collected their trophy and they praise the living Jesus and we think, wow, what a great witness. And then we hear about their lives publicly and we can't measure the two up. It's alive today. The final proof of any ministry is whether it promotes obedience to the Father's will. Modern pastor John Stott says, We recite the creed in church and sing hymns expressive of devotion to Christ. We even exercise a variety of ministries in his name, but he is not impressed by our words. He still asks for evidence of our sincerity in good works and obedience. Anything else is the product of evildoers, which will result in eternal banishment. Anything else, God knows that those whom he loves and he loves those who are single-mindedly totally submitted to him and do the things that please him. Well... Who are they and what do their attitudes look like? Well, the first point was that they can be charlatans. The second is that they can actually be deluded about spiritual things. R.V. Tasker says, It is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. A man may also be grievously self deceived. So Jesus confronts us with himself and he sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. In fact, spiritual delusion can be a camouflage for disobedience. Jesus emphasises that with only the heart's abandonment towards him and seeking to do his will, whatever the cost, can we have eternal destiny with him. Neutrality towards Jesus is impossible. Nothing can take the place of an active, practical obedience. The issue of life and death on the Day of Judgment will be determined by our response to Christ and his teaching in our lives. So what about you and I? You know, last weekend, I I had a wrestle with the devil. It was... My son was married, and, and it was a beautiful wedding. And 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 on the Sunday, we were going to visit my niece, who's just moved down from Melbourne to um, a beautiful duplex house in Port Melbourne. I'd never been to Port Melbourne before, and I rang my sister on the phone, and she said, "Come and join us. We're we're having coffee by this beautiful cafe on 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 the beach." So so we called in, and and. I I was just awestruck. I've never been to this part of Melbourne before. I thought, why go to um, Queensland on the coast when you can go to Port Melbourne in Melbourne? Um, It was just spectacular. And as I sat there, there was just a sense in me that the world is in love with leisure and riches and having a good time. That's what the world's idol is that's what the world's goal is and I was sitting there and I can tell you I was really enjoying it (laughs) and I can tell you that as I was driving back I was starting to project what my week was going to be like and you know and I was starting to think oh I think I want to be back in Port Melbourne sitting on the side with the cafe and, and being where the beautiful people are enjoying the beautiful life. I love it here. (laughs) But it really was, it really was a tussle. It was a tussle. And, you know, Friday I was down in Melbourne, hallelujah, Mary and I, our last Friday in Melbourne, and I had a real epiphany. I just like using that word. (laughs) Look it up if you don't know what it is. But it sounds great, doesn't it? but i had a meltdown because i was feeling tired and hormonal and all of those things and the radio was playing and there was an announcement and on the radio announcement the ad said this year this maya melbourne want a gift the people of Melbourne with a Christmas gift. Instead of coming to us, you know how you go and see the Maya windows. Maya is coming to the people of Melbourne. And they were going to do, and they are going to do like a, a Christmas float to the people of Melbourne. It's Maya's gift. And then they said, and we're gonna have Bart Simpson. <laughs> and, and we're gonna have Jennifer, Jennifer Hawkins. And they listed all these people that were going to be on the float, the Christmas float, for the gift for Christmas for Melbourne. And, you know, I'm going to get emotional because I'm still hormonal. (laughs) I was driving and I burst into tears because I said, where's the babe in the mansion?" Where is the babe in the manger? Where is he? Where is he in Port Melbourne? Where is he at Christmas? And that's what I want to ask you. This passage is saying, where is the babe in the manger in your lives? Are you just play acting with your faith? Which response Are you going to give to Jesus? Is it the I will? I will do what I want to do. I will do life my way. And Jesus, I'll put you in this box and I'll bring you out when I feel like it or when it looks good or I'll bring you out on Sunday. Is that the I will? Is that where you're at? Or is it the I will, Lord? I will, Lord, with all my heart. I will surrender with everything because I'm sick to death of the I will. I'm sick to death of the Christmas with Bart Simpson. I'm sick of it. Which I will is you this morning because God laid it on my heart this week, Gail, Get rid of the I will. It's about total submission, total obedience to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the babe in the manger at Christmas. What about us today? My heart broke. And, you know, there are two outcomes. There are two outcomes that are really real. They're in this word, these scriptures. The first are the evildoers or the charlatans or the pretenders. And that might be one of you here. Those that do things in his name but don't love him with all their heart. They don't obey him with all their hearts. Jesus says, get away from me. Get away from me. I never knew you. On judgment day, I don't want to stand before Jesus and have him say to me, I never knew you. You thought you were doing things in my name. You thought you were serving me. You thought you were calling upon my name. But I never knew you. You didn't love me with your whole heart. There were things that you made idols of before me. Oh, it might be your family. It might be a job. It might be your career. It might be getting your masters. It might be your leisure activity. It might be your holidays. What idols do you have that you're still holding on to in your heart that is taking up room where Jesus needs to be. You see, Jesus in this scripture is saying, only those that do the will of my God, of me, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he means by that is your whole heart totally surrendered to him. Jesus sees the heart of obedience and abandonment towards him. He moves on from what? These evildoers are saying and will say to him to what he will say to them. He too will make a solemn profession. He will address them with the terrible words, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoers. For although they had used his name freely, their name was unknown to him. What about those who say, Lord, I will, I will, Lord, with all my heart, winding up, what are some of the outcomes that we should see in our lives when we are totally surrendered to him? Well, the first is that you'll have a deep love for Christ and for others. The second is that you'll develop fruit in your life. That's been the prelude to this scripture. And the third, and I've taken liberty with this, it's not in this scripture, but it's elsewhere, the third is that you'll have a deep love for the church. Have a deep love for Christ. We know the commandment that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind. On these two hang all the law and the prophets What's your love like? Let me wind up this article from Christianity Today. It's the last paragraph. It's very telling. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Africa's young, renewalist church is discovering that the line between preaching hope and turning it into an idol can be a fine line. The love of the rest of the body of faith will help it to find its way. That's the conclusion. Love. You should be known by your love to Christ and to others, but you should be known by your fruit as well. Larry Crabb says in Finding God, he reminds us that the purpose of growth is not just that we feel better about ourselves in order to try to create our own little heaven on earth, but that we were created by and for God to glorify him and live for his purposes That's what this scripture is telling us. If people really trust Christ for salvation, their lives will no longer be self-centred. They will belong to the good tree that will be made manifest by the fruit they bear. The history of the church has huge examples of ecclesiastics who made free use of expressions like Lord, Lord, but whose arrogant and self-centred lives made a mockery of their words. Jesus is not saying that those saved will have earned their salvation, but that the reality of their faith will be made clear by their fruitful lives. In John 15, Jesus uses the image of the vine. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. If we stay close to Jesus, we will bear much fruit, but without him, we can do nothing, nothing. The way to produce fruit is to be personally and vitally related to Jesus. Unless we are in this relationship We will bear no fruit, so we must remain in the vine. And lastly, they will have a deep love for the church. You know, it's true that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom that is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognisable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance and church membership without really belonging to a church community. And contributing as a servant leader in your church. As a, as a team, we've been reading a book, and I'm winding up and just trying to find the, the, the piece of paper. It's in front of me. As a, as a, as a, as a staff, we've been reading a book by Gilbert, Gilbert Bilzilkian, and it's called Community 101. And I want to wind up by reading something that was yet another epiphany for me this week. I've had a week. (laughs) Um, I want to read this to you. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. We see that there. God so loved the world that he gave his only son but the son so loved the church that he gave his life for her. Jesus Christ was the love expression of the Godhead. He loved life, he created it. He loved people, they were the object of his ministry. He loved his disciples, he called them his friends. He loved the rich young ruler, he wanted him for a disciple. He loved the father, Together with the Holy Spirit, they were the original community of oneness. He loved John, the beloved disciple. He loved Lazarus to the point of refusing his death. He loved Mary and Martha as his own sisters. He loved the world of nature. He'd come out of his created hands. Christ had many loves, but the dominant love of his life was his love for his bride, the church. His life was driven by a compelling, irresistible passion for the church. He loved the church to death. His love for her is inalterable. She will remain his bride in all eternity. Anyone who claims to love Christ without loving the church that Christ loves does not really love Christ. When authentic love for Christ translates into love for the church, it is evident. The hermit who cultivates spirituality in the remote solitude of a cave does not really love Christ. The evangelist who thinks he saves and heals people without pressing them to join the church does not really love Christ. The priest who claims to be the church does not really love Christ. The parachurch staffer who remains unchurched does not really love Christ. A boring preacher does not really love Christ. A passive church attender does not really love Christ. A competitive church planter does not really love Christ. An irascible missionary does not really love Christ. A racist Sexist Christian does not really love Christ. A greedy Christian does not really love Christ. Leaders who shackle ministry with hierarchy do not really love Christ. Christians who allow churches to wallow in mediocrity do not really love Christ. Able-bodied Christians who watch TV evangelists instead of joining local congregations do not really love Christ. He or she loves Christ who, like him, is willing to sacrifice blood for the church in order to help present her to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. One who really loves Christ is driven by a compelling passion for the church because she is his passion. I don't know about you, but that brought me to my knees because I love the church. I love this church. And it is enough, enough, enough gossip, enough maligning, anything that happens here. This is God's passion. Jesus gave himself up for her. Jesus wants us today to do two things from this scripture. He wants us to surrender every part of our life to him, to say, I will, Lord, with all my heart. He wants us to obey him, not just give him lip service. And the second thing I believe he wants us to do is to recommit our passion for this body, for this church and serve it gloriously, passionately, wonderfully, beautifully, giving our blood for it. That's what he wants us to do. I don't want to meet my saviour on judgement day and him say to me, go away from me, I never knew you. What is your response today? Some of you here today will have been touched by these words as I have been touched by these words. Some of you here today have to repent of living your life with the I will, without the I will, Lord, with all my heart. I'm going to pray, and as you are so led, I want you to come before your living God, the truth. Hand over your idols, repent of them. Hand over what you're holding on to. Move into the I will with all my heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We want to come before you and we want to say, you, Lord Jesus, are our everything. And we want to repent. We want to ask forgiveness for living lives with the I will, for doing things in your name without really giving our whole surrendered heart to you. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. We truly love you. We truly love your people. We truly want to grow and bear fruit. We want to remain in the vine and we want to love your church. Lord Jesus, help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.